I've had several jobs in my life. Some jobs taught me what I am not. Um, in a past life in another state we won't mention, I had the opportunity to spend a couple of years discovering that I am not an elementary school teacher. <laughs> it was a tough couple six years. I, it was a tough couple of years. If there was a bright spot in it, it would have to be the six weeks I spent teaching kindergarten. During that time, I was gleaning everything I could to be the best kindergarten teacher I could be. In my reading, I came across a cute story. The kids have come in from the playground and are at their tables with their box of crayons, and they have been experiencing draw and color whatever you want, but use your inside voices time. As a teacher walks the room, admiring the dinosaurs, the fast cars, the butterflies and such, she comes to a little girl extremely focused and intently working on something. Well, that's very beautiful, beautiful, Katie. What are you drawing? Well, I'm drawing a picture of God. Well, Katie, that's very nice, and your choice of colors is excellent, but God is invisible. No one has ever seen God. No one really knows what he looks like. Katie stops, sets her crayon down, looks up at her wise teacher and says, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> We're going to be doing a four-week four series on the book of Ruth. All through the Old Testament, God was drawing and painting a picture of Christ. Vivid pictures of the lamb as sacrifice, an ark with only one door, a rock that births forth with life-giving water, bread from heaven, a serpent on a pole. And there were people in the Old Testament whose lives were sort of a shadow or a hint of Christ to come. Moses, Joseph, and in the book of Ruth, we discover the man Boaz. God was painting with very vivid colors when he inspired the book of Ruth. And it's my prayer that as we dig into this amazing story, a story that pictures Christ as our, redeem, our kinsman redeemer, our provider, our rescuer, that at the end of this series, you'll be able to say, so that's what our God looks like. So let's dig in. If you have a Bible, a phone, an iPad, I'd prefer it just be a Bible like old times. But if you got a Bible, well, you're going to want to follow along because we're going to go verse by verse, and I want you to follow along with me. Ruth. The author of the book is unknown. At the end of the book, David is mentioned, so it has to be someone from David's era on. The Jews think that the author was Samuel who anointed David, and this book is kind of a pedigree. Some think David himself is the author, so we just don't know for sure. What we do know is that this is a book about a faithful person in the midst of a very unfaithful time in the nation of Israel. So let's begin. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from, the Beth, from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In the days when the judges ruled, this was a dark, dark time for Israel. To get a kind of flavor of the culture, we read in Judges 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. As I read through some of the book of Judges to prepare for this study, there was a recurring scenario. When Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, they were to tear down the altars, drive out the people, and conquer the land. Yet Joshua 13 tells us that didn't happen. And when we get to Judges 2, we have Israel in the promised land, among idols, intermarrying with the people of the land, and we read that the angel of the Lord came to a town called Bochum and gave them this message from God. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you will make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And oh, did those thorns cause pain. Over and over in Judges, the following scene would repeat. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So then God would bring a judge to lead them. The judge would die, and Israel would return to idolatry of the land. God would bring a thorn by means of the nations around them, and Israel would be put in servitude. They would cry out to God. He would hear them and send a judge to deliver them, and, and deliver them, and the story would repeat. Before we go on, this was occurring in the promised land. The picture painted in the Old Testament of Moses leading the people of, out of Egypt into the promised land flowing with milk and honey, it's a picture of our salvation in Christ. We were in bondage, we were enslaved to sin. Christ, a deliverer, foreshadowed in the person of Moses, has set us free and has brought us into new life. And yet I think that we have repeated some of the same mistakes as Israel. We come to Christ, 
God frees us from slavery to sin, but as time goes on, we get comfortable in the culture. We get desensitized to the things that offend God, and we start to allow the idols of the culture to creep into our lives. The scary thing is, like the frog in the boiling pot, we don't notice it happening. I used to make artificial legs. Many of the amputations that I worked with were not results of motorcycle accidents or trauma. They were, they were the result of a person whose nerve endings were no longer sensitive to the things that should hurt. Lack of, sensitive, lack of sensitivity to a pebble in the shoe or their foot too close to a heater leads to infection, to gangrene, and eventually the loss of their limb. It's no less dangerous when we lose sensitivity to both the things that God hates and the things that God loves. What am I allowing to come through the gateway of my eyes and ears that God has said no to? Things that used to cause discomfort because the Holy Spirit's convicting voice was so loud, but now the ignored voice calling to me is silenced. Who around me is hurting and needs to see God's love lived out through me, yet I'm no longer sensitive and I walk on by. It's hard living in a broken world. Have you ever wished that God would just make everyone behave like Christians and remove any that don't? That God would cause everything that tempts us to vanish? God did not drive out the thorny nations in the time of the judges, and there's an interesting verse that explains why. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars of Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. God allows the hard things in the world, the people of the world, the idols of the world, the thorns, to exist around us for a reason. The purpose is to test us, to strengthen us, and to teach us spiritual, how to fight spiritual battles. One of the nations he used to, dis to discipline Israel was Moab, the country named in the first verse of Ruth. Moab would be located where Jordan is today. Do you remember where the man of Moab came from? He was a son born of an incestuous relationship of Lot with his older daughter. It's recorded in Genesis 19. So Israel was doing evil. And God, who loves his children, disciplines his children. In my house as a kid, the means of discipline was coming when mom reached into the kitchen drawer for the wooden spoon. How many of you today are wooden spoon survivors? <laughs> well, God opened up his drawer and he reached for Moab. The Bible says that God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, and he attacked Israel. The result, that he, result was that Israel was under Eglon's hand for 18 long years. His throne was located in what was once Jericho. Yeah, that Jericho. 
the Jericho where God gave victory and the walls came tumbling down. A place of awesome victory, and there in that place of victory, God took out his brush and painted a picture of how the flesh can slip in and take control. This is an ugly, gory story. The Bible describes in vivid detail an indulgent, overfed, very obese, fleshy man reigning in a place where God had given victory. And Israel cried out to their Lord, and God heard their cries. He raised up a deliverer. His name was Ehud, a left-handed Benjamite. Well, Ehud made a double-edged sword, and he strapped it on his right thigh and covered it with his garment, and he and a band of Israelites went to the king to bring them a tribute, probably some kind of tax or a gift. God had chosen his deliverer well. After entering the king's throne room, Ehud dismissed everyone so that he could speak privately with the king. As he stood before the king, his left hand went under his cloak. There was no, no warning sign to, to warn Eglon. I mean, who grabs a knife with their left hand? The Bible says that Ehud drove the sword in Eglon's belly so that even his hand was covered up by fat. The biblical picture is gory, it's dirty, and it's smelly. You see, when we fight the flesh, it's not an easy battle. Some of us are in the midst of fighting spiritual battles right now. The flesh is a worthy adversary. He is hard to unseat from his place of rule, and he does not die easily. We need the sword of the spirit, and God will give us victory. The weapons of the power are from him. But you and I are called to do the fighting. We often ask God to take the problem, the struggle, the temptation away. But God says, I am with you. I've given you everything you need. I've given you the weapons to win the fight. Listen to my voice. Obey me. Walk as my spirit directs you. I'm with you and will never leave. But you have to fight. We will discover that it is often a tough, messy, gory battle when we fight the flesh. But we will also discover the strength of our commander when we obey his orders. When Eglon the king was dead, God mobilized Israel's fighting men and they killed 10,000 strong Moabite men. The enemy was subdued and there was peace in the land for 80 years. So Emelech's family is living in Bethlehem during this 80 years and they're in the midst of a famine. The family's hungry. So he loaded up the household goods and they moved to Moab, hoping for better times. And Moab was peaceful, thanking, thanks to God raising up an obedient lefty. And there was rain. It's kind of like what happened several years ago when out-of-work construction workers left the West Coast for South Dakota and they hoped things would work out better. But what started as just a sojourn for Mr. E and his wife ended up as a place where he remained. 
Have you ever had the experience where because of circumstances you make a change, a temporary change, and then it becomes permanent? This can happen in our Christian walk. I'll stay home just one Sunday for football. I'm going to leave work early to just catch up, and I'll cut short my devotions. Or skip prayer at night because I'm just too tired. Emelech, whose name meant God is king, just went on a sojourn, a temporary journey to get food, and he found himself remaining there. We need to be careful of temporary compromises. So, how did things work out for Elimelech? He fled famine to find life, and instead he found death. And his boys, they took wives. God had said no previously to that. What was the danger of intermarriage? The danger is that they would turn their hearts to worship foreign gods. Is it possible that a non-believing woman could cause a God-fearing man to stray to the point of worshiping other gods? It did with Solomon. Solomon was a man who walked with God, spoke for God, and yet at the end of the life, he built houses of worship to Molech, God of the Ammonites, and Chemosh, God of Moab. And yes, some of his wives were Ammonites and Moabites. The gals the boys married were Orpah and Ruth. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for he had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on a way to return to the land of Judah. It says in verse 6 that she rose. What caused her to get up? Well, she'd heard of the activity of God, maybe overheard while walking in the fields or in the market, but it hit home with her. It was time to go back to the land of her covenant-keeping God. It was time to go back where there was fellowship. The word return is a word that means turn back, restore, or repent. It has the idea of not just going, but of going to back where she had been both spiritually and physically. Basically, Naomi reversed the direction that her husband had taken. Kind of like a little chick scurrying back to the warmth and protection of her mother's wings, Naomi runs back under God's wings. Let me just take a second and ask a question. Is it possible that there is someone here who has not run away from God, but due to decisions and choices have stepped out of God's guidance and out of God's protection? If so, today would be a great day to make a decision to come back under your father's wings. You see, sometimes we find ourselves in Moab, not Sodom, but Moab, a place where we have gone without being called there by God. And stuff happens, circumstances happen, consequences of life stuff. Sometimes even though things aren't good, it's really tough to leave. Choosing to return to the place that God wants us physically and spiritually is hard. It involves taking steps. So Naomi was in Moab and heard the fact that Jehovah, the covenant keeper, had visited his people. She heard there was food, 
The famine had been God's discipline, and now God is blessing. Did Naomi know what awaited her in Bethlehem? Will we always know what our return to God will bring? No, but she took steps to depart and started her journey back. She began a faith walk. She departed the place where she was to go to the place her heart told her to. Later, we'll find that she knew the laws regarding the kinsman redeemer that's laid out in Deuteronomy. She would also have known the laws on how God directed Israel to care for its widows. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Why did she ask them to go back? I think as Naomi was walking, she remembered what it was like to leave what is familiar for what is foreign. I think she's remembering the pain she felt as she looked back on the town of Bethlehem as she and Elimelech walked away many years before. Moab is what Orpah and Ruth know. It's home, it's culture, it's food, it's dialect. It's what would be familiar to them. Naomi knows how hard it will be for them. And then Naomi praises the two girls' kindness. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. The word rest here means security. Marriage as God intended it is supposed to be a restful place, a place of security for the wife. Women, close your ears here. I'm not talking to you right now. I want to talk to the myself and the men here. This is an important question to ask ourselves. Are our wives finding rest and safety under our leadership and protection? As we need as men, we need to ask God for sensitivity and for good ears so that we may recognize if our wives are feeling insecure or afraid. And if so, listen to God's promptings as he guides and calls us to obey him as he transforms us to provide that. Now, will a husband always get it right? Should a wife look to her husband for ultimate security? No. But God has placed men as dads and husbands to reflect how he loves and protects. Wives are wired to need that sense of security and protection. God designed it that way. That is why children who have grown up under unloving fathers have such a difficult time comprehending a loving heavenly father. As husbands and fathers, we are the umbrella for our families. He has placed us in their lives to protect them, to love them, and to care for them. And men, when we sin, when we make compromises in our walk, the umbrella that we are to be has holes. And our wives shiver and suffer when the storms of life come. 
Okay, women, you can come back with us now. <laughs> Naomi kisses them, says goodbye, and they all wept aloud. Women, okay. Naomi had a good relationship with her daughters-in-law. They loved each other. Naomi often gets bad press, yet she held fast to her God while living in the midst of idolatry. Her daughters-in-law observed her faith, and they realized that it was real. The people close to us can most easily recognize if we're just giving God lip service or if our character is genuine. Orpah and Ruth saw that it was real. And Naomi put the girls first. These two girls could be both helpful to her, and yet she thought of them when she asked them to go. Their response, no. The word means absolutely, resolutely, definitely no. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return, my ho return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. What is this talking about? This is called leveret marriage. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Naomi says that the Lord's hands is turned against her. She sees his hand as a hand of discipline. She realized that the long stay in Moab, Moab was disobedience to God. And often when we see God discipline us or chastising us, we feel that God is against us. And this is just not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. Proverbs 3.12 says, because the Lord disciplines those he, whoops, it's not Proverbs. Well, Proverbs 3.12 says, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in, he delights in us while he's disciplined. Naomi is seeing the hand of God in discipline, but in a few chapters, that same hand is going to be going against her in discipline, will be going for her. Naomi's great-grandson puts it this way, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So let's do a status check on Naomi at this point. How does the possibility of a leveret marriage look as an option? Not too good. How would Naomi's hope meter read? Kind of on empty. So as a group here who knows the end of the story, how accurate are you and I to be able to determine the outcome in our lives based on looking at present circumstances? We can't. This doesn't mean that in this life there's always a happy ending, but it does mean that as believers, as followers of Christ who look beyond the grave, there's an amazing, beyond comprehension, happy ending that never ends. 
At this they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Who wept? All of them. How many of them had strong emotions? All of them. This is kind of an example of how some can experience Christianity. They love the songs on Sunday morning. They talk about angels watching over them. They're moved emotionally, but in their daily life, their actions don't match. Orpah and Ruth both loved Naomi. They both felt sadness to the point of weeping. In this verse, the word weeping means really, really loud. Yet Ruth didn't just feel, she acted. We need to make sure that we don't get content with just feelings. Feeling the emotions that can be stirred up in worship or in a church body. In Mark 12, a teacher of the law came and asked Jesus questions, and then Jesus asked him some. And Jesus made the comment that he was not far from the kingdom of God. Orpah, I think, was pretty close as well. The word for the kiss that she gave was a tender and endearing kiss. She really did love Naomi. She just, at the moment when the fork in the road required a decision, she didn't have the resolve to choose the right one. What happened to Orpah? We don't know. But Ruth clung to her. Do your, some of your Bibles have a different word than clung. You yours might say Ruth cleaved to her. What comes to mind with that word? Cleaving, marriage. Was Ruth leaving anything when she cleaved to Naomi? Anything, she left everything, her family, her idols, her God, her culture. Orpah, however, reminds me of the rich young ruler who went away sad because he couldn't part with what he had. He had the desire, he had the emotion, but he just couldn't take the step of faith. Ruth cleaving is an act of faith, and there are really no guarantees for her future. But she, at that moment, in her heart, left all that she had, all that she had known to cling to a woman who had, through her life, given her a glimpse of a God she now chose to follow. Cleaving takes on a new identity. Denny, my cute wife, is no longer Denise Sharon, but she's now Denny Young, wife of Doug. Ruth is saying, no longer I will be identified with the Moabites. They're gods and idols. I will leave that life, but I will be part of a new nation, a new people, and I will serve a new God. Jesus calls us to leave and cleave to him as well. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but ever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Oftentimes we'll hit a passage in God's word that speaks of the sovereignty of God. Other times there'll be passages that speak of man's ability to choose. Does Ruth really have a choice here? Is there really an option for her to go back to Moab with Orpah? Yeah, she has a choice. God is sovereign. He's in control, but he's not making the choice for her. 
The choices we make are serious. They have life-changing, eternity-changing consequences. Orpah experienced through Naomi what the God of Israel was like. She almost took the right path. In fact, from how the story reads, it sounds like she almost started on the way. Did Orpah go back as a convert to Jehovah to live for him in her own land? No, she went to, back to her gods and her idols. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. But Ruth. This is a time where a real contrast is shown. Orpah is taking steps back to Moab. Ruth is saying, I'm going to walk in your steps. May the Lord deal with me. Already we see Ruth humbly placing herself under the hand and authority of God. We often use this section in marriage ceremonies. Let's look at the different phrases. phrases. Where you go, I will go. She's forsaking all to follow, kind of like Abraham, Abraham, who in response to God, left his people, his land, his gods, and everything. Where you stay, I will stay. She didn't know where she would be. She didn't know if it's going to be in a cottage, an inn, or under the stars. But she's willing to make the place Naomi stays her own. Your people will be my people. She's committing herself to a new people, a culture where Moabites are not looked friendly upon. And your God, my God. This is repentance, turning from idols of Moab to Jehovah. Ruth, by her definition, matches this definition of faith. Faith is not only believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of the consequence. Esther, another great Old Testament woman of faith, expressed this same commitment when she stated, if I perish, I perish. And then where you die, I will die. This is not a short-term commitment. It's to the end. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. The word determined means to stiffen oneself firmly upon something. In James, we read of a double-minded man. This is a very precarious decision time for Ruth. Do you see any double-mindedness here? Nuh-uh. So the two women went on till they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman explained, can this be Naomi? The trip from Bethlehem was about 50 miles and would take seven to 10 days. They would descend 4,500 feet from the plains of Moab. And then they would reclimb about 3,750 feet as they ascended into the foothills of Judea. So this is a long trip. When she left Bethlehem, she had her husband and two sons. She had lots of men with her. In the time of the judges, you needed protection. The highways were anything but safe. But I had to think, which trip is safer for her? Leaving God's people as a younger woman with three men at her side or returning to God's people as an older widow with a young widow at her side. 
This is simply conjecture, and we need to be careful with that. But I think the temptation on the trip out would have been to trust in physical resources. Her husband and her two sons. On the tr return trip, she would only have God. She would be totally dependent on him. I think we are most vulnerable when we're self-sufficient and most secure when we have nothing and only have the Lord. And it says the whole town was stirred, visibly moved like crashing brass or waves on a beach. Naomi must have been pretty well known because they remembered her name, although it had been 10 years since she left. It is it said that the woman asked, can this be Naomi? 10 years of hard life changed her. Physical, physically, there was a different. Hard times show. I remember how quickly my hair turned gray when I started my own business. It had been a hard 10 years for Naomi, and it showed. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. Do you remember what Naomi means? Pleasant. She sharply corrects them and asks that they call her what? Mara. I've heard that word before. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. It was the first place Israel camped after coming out of slavery. And they, like Naomi, called the testing of God bitter. Are trials bad for us? The temptation for me when I'm in the midst of a trial is to view it as a bitter time. Remember how Jesus, James told us to respond? He said, count it all joy, knowing what it's going to produce. A man named Douglas Malak wrote a little poem that illustrates the benefits of trials. It's called Good Timber. Good Timber. The tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light, but stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain, never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to gain and farm his patch of soil, who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. Good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger the wind, the stronger the trees. The further sky, the greater length. The more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, by rain and snow, in trees and men, good timbers grow. Naomi uses the word Shaddai when she says almighty. El Shaddai means sizable, considerable, competent, ample, adequate, large enough to be sufficient. El Shaddai is a word that's found in Genesis and then mainly in Job and in Ruth, 33 out of 48 times. Suffering and El Shaddai or the all-sufficient God seem to go together. Why do you think that is? It's when we're at our weakest times that we see God is most sufficient. It's when we're at the end of our rope in Moab that we realize that God is large enough to walk with us through any trial. 
I don't know what your Moab is, but our God does. And he is El Shaddai, more than sufficient enough to walk with you through any trial. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty One has brought misfortune upon me. She's talking extremes. Full and empty are at either end. She has experienced both. Do you see any glint of hope in her comment? The Lord has brought me. Her all-sufficient God is directing and moving her life. We will find peace when we understand the truth that God is moving us in the circumstances that we are in. Sometimes it will be his discipline, sometimes testing to make us strong, sometimes trial so that we will cleave to him. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's interesting. Naomi asked that she be called Mara, but the Holy Spirit, as he directed the writer of this book, still calls her Naomi pleasant. God knows the story's not done. He's read the last page of the book. God sees Naomi as pleasant and not bitter. Naomi's come home, and nothing warms God's heart like one who, who has wandered coming home. You know what's most frustrating as a father, a boss, or a person in authority? It's when a person withdraws from a relationship. When you ask what's wrong and they say nothing. God can handle us voicing frustration. God can handle our anger. He will fight our pride, but God knows that we are human and frail. And he knew that Naomi was at the end of her rope. If this was a footprints in the sand scene, this is a scene where a loving, almighty, all-powerful God would pick up a struggling, bitter, frustrated Naomi and carry her. So the lesson for us is to remain, to abide, to stay. Even in our frustration, our grief, and our anger, God will carry us. He will discipline us. He'll walk with us. And he always loves us. But he doesn't want us to climb up and run. And Naomi was right. It was God who brought her back. And look at this amazing coincidence. They arrived just as the barley harvest was beginning. We serve and are held by an awesome God. Who, as he guides you and I in our walk, as he guided Naomi, he has perfect timing.